0: We want to begin chapter 12, verse 1 here in just a moment. Um, One or two thoughts about this uh, passage that you sort of have to remember the context, which is that preceding paragraph where the authority of the Lord Jesus was challenged, and um, his response to them, if you remember, was just absolutely masterful. They're asking him, the source of his authority, why he does these things, the miracles, and more particularly, particularly the cleansing of the temple, the driving out of the money changers and so on. And then his response twists them up. And so their response is silent. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to answer you. Now, that that is very important because I want you to remember we are in Passion Week now. We're in that week, the final week of Jesus Um public ministry before he goes back to the Father and all of that. And so this would be probably, we're still Tuesday of Passion Week. Pretty certain that uh, verse 22, that event is Tuesday. As far as we know, this is still Tuesday because Mark begins chapter 12, verse 1, and he began to speak them in parables. And the end there, as you remember from English grammar, is a coordinating conjunction. So he just wants to continue what usually for him is not a major concern, but it is we to maintain a chronology. Remember, a parable, uh, I'm sure that's not a new term to you, <clears throat> a parable is a story. It's a story to teach a biblical truth. It's a—it's a, almost always when Jesus teaches a parable, it's something from everyday life that Everybody hearing his story is going to know exactly what he means and exactly what he's saying. The interpretation of it is always the issue. So the story would be a little, little bit odd for you and me. But in the first century, ancient and eastern world, this was a very normal thing. Someone who owns a great deal of land, in this case a vineyard, and he leaves. And he gives in charge of that and gives oversight to a variety of people and so on. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, all of those various phrases should make sense to you, but just in case it doesn't, uh, what we're talking about here is the, the, uh, the loaner, this land, he's building the whole operation on site. He plants the vineyard, he secures it with a fence, etc. Then he digs a, a pit for the wine press and then builds a tower where the the, the, uh, the wine would be pressed and, and where all of the, the things that would be needed to get from the grape to the wine. And then he leases it out. So, I mean, this guy has invested a lot of money in this operation. And he leases it out and then went into another country. And I read from the ESV translation, they have chosen to translate that tenant. And that, I think that has the same meaning for you and me as it would have in the first century. He is the owner, but he's leasing it to somebody who's then going to carry out all the operations. So he's kind of now, and this may or may not fit, but I think it, it helps. He's now an ancient uh, absentee landlord. He owns everything, but he's not there. And so I'm, I'm sure you're going to figure this out. The owner of the vineyard is God. And in the, in the Old Testament literature, in the Old Testament, I'm thinking of Isaiah 5, which is most prominent, a vineyard. Israel is called God's vineyard. And so the, the symbolism here, again, for somebody in the first century hearing this story, they'd make the connections right away. These are Jews. Because they know he's, he's he's got a point to all this, and so he, he so he he sets it up, and he leaves. When the season came, he sent a servant, and the season um, would be the the um, the harvest and the preparation, and the product being the wine and so on. So he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the fruit of the vineyard. So he wants his share of what they are producing. And they took him and beat him and sent him away up to Hinden. Again, he, the owner, in this case, God, sent another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so many others, some they beat, some they killed. All right, now, as we're gonna see in just a minute, all of these different servants are the prophets of God. The vineyard is Israel. God is the sovereign Lord of Israel and so on. And so he keeps sending these prophets, not in a way to harvest, but harvest spiritually, but to remind them, to review with them the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant under which they are to walk with God and so on, and you know what happens to the prophets many of the prophets in the Old Testament were martyred. And so that's, again, as, as they're hearing this story and particularly the, the tenants are the religious leaders. And I, and that doesn't take too much of, 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 of imagination to understand it because as God leaves, who is supposed to represent him? Well, the Levitical priests, the Pharisees, etc. these are the people who are supposed to be accurately representing God, accurately doing what God wants them to do to keep the people of Israel focused on the covenant and their relationship with God. And so because they're not doing that, he keeps sending these prophets. Then look at verse, uh, what verse is it? Verse six. He stole another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them. So who's the son? It's Jesus. They will respect my son, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now that is very consistent with what the prophets said would happen. And so the, the, Jesus then reads by uh, well, quote, He says, Have you not read from Scripture? He's quoting here from Psalm 118, um, verse 22 and 23 to be specific. Have you not read this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so the Lord, uh, the Lord quotes a really, really well-known psalm. Psalm 118 is a whole cluster of psalms called the Ascent Psalms, which most Jews had memorized. They would sing these as they're heading to Jerusalem and so on. But let's think about how Christ is applying this psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the Lord has switched the metaphor from an agricultural metaphor or a tenant, or excuse me, the owner of the vineyard and tenants and all of that, and he sends his son. Now he switches it to an architectural or an engineering or a building metaphor. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the, the language here, i I'm going to do this, so I'm going to move over here and get a board, and I'll be back. You want me to take that board over there? I can do it real quick. Well, what I, for this to be really meaningful, I have to draw something. I could do it, but Tim, uh, I'm coming your way. Okay. You want to grab
1: grab that other? We're one. in
0: upheaval and chaos here, so give us a minute. God always brings order out of chaos. God is not the God of disorder. God is the God, God of order and stability. We're about to restore that in just a minute.
1: All right, we are restored.
0: Thank you you very much. Now I hope you guys that can see view this are gonna be able to see this. Now the language of Psalm 118 that Jesus is quoting is all right, you have you have a building here, and you have a corner, you have a foundation stone. And then because in the Greco-Roman world, this is usually how they constructed things. Here is the cornerstone, or here is the foundation stone. They've rejected that. But that stone becomes the, literally the Greek is the peak stone. Or the ESV translates that the corner stone. Today, we sometimes call this the key stone. So this is the language that Christ is using here in this, uh, in this passage. Actually, I mean the the Old Testament is using in this passage. That that what what the what the Jews, their leadership has rejected is going to become the most important stone in the building. The keystone. And I mean, I think you all know that. That's an arch, which <laughs> it was very important part of building buildings and so on. And that keystone, that peak stone, it could, it could it could, be a post and leno but there's going to be one stone that's going to be the key of a lot of the pressure and stress. And so it's, he's switching metaphors but he's saying in effect I am the cornerstone. You rejected me as the foundation stone but there's going to be a building erected in which I am going to be the key that's going to hold everything together. And so that language is indisputably clear. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So did these spiritual leaders, Pharisees, maybe some Sadducees, definitely scribes, they hear this, Jesus tells this parable, and they figured out he is talking about us. So they left him and went away. They understood the point of the parable. And so we would assume as well that others that are listening to this parable, remember this is Passion Week. Jesus is in Jerusalem, the exact location. We're not sure some discussion about that isn't really important, but others would have heard this. So this is prophetic. It's factual because that's what's happening. But it's also prophetic. What they are rejecting is going to become the most important most important quote: Stone close quote in the coming kingdom, because he's the king. They're rejecting the king, <laughs> and so it's 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 a very powerful parable, and it's it is not ambiguous. Even somebody like me can figure it out. I mean, it is a very clear application of these spiritual leaders. They're the tenants. They should have guarded God's God's people, His vineyard. They should have instructed and, and discipled and and ministered to it. No, that's not what they did. And so the Lord keeps sending new prophets to remind them of what's in every one of them. They beat or kill, etc., and then the sun comes. So the imagery is very clear, of this parallel. Okay, got it. Any questions? Just a comment. They, you know, in
1: Foundation Stones, they put a lot of documents oh, yeah. um, in those today that are important that give a history. He's kind of giving a verbal history, and and he is the foundation of it. And
0: it's, know, well, it's, whether they whether they expect accept it or not, he is the foundation. But he also becomes the most important peak stone, which is really the word. When I, when I go to Israel and do tours and so on, there are two buildings in Israel. There's a synagogue in in, um, in one of the the one of the cities Jesus ministered in. And it's so clear where the peak stone is. And we always point that out in the region of this passage. And, and then there's another, another one in Jerusalem where that that key stone is so clear and that it, perhaps even as Jesus is teaching, he points to that. The cornerstone becomes the cornerstone. And so it's just a, it's a very powerful image for, for anyone to to, to grasp. All right, everybody online. I got it. Can I move on? All right, verse 13 through verse 16. Now, we're in this section, and and Matthew does this, and Luke does this, and Mark's doing it. In this Passion Week narrative, there are a number of final confrontations between Jesus and the spiritual leadership. And so here's another one. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees. Now, who's the they? Yeah, it would be the Sanhedrin. These are the these are the leaders trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get enough evidence to get him to get enough evidence to to take him to Pilate and charge him with sedition. Because for the Jews, they want to charge him with blasphemy, which they will charge him with. But Rome's not going to execute Jesus because he committed blasphemy in the Jews. They don't. They could care less about that. So they're trying to build the case for sedition. And so this particular confrontation is well thought out. They, they would have spent some time thinking this through. And I want you to notice, they sent again, um, Fred's right, this is the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees, you know who they are, and the Herodians. We haven't met them yet. This is a very small, political party. But these people are loyal to Herod Antipas. Remember when Herod the Great died in, in four BC, Rome accepted his will and divided his kingdom into three parts and Herod Antipas, his son got Galilee. And so the, the Herodians are loyal to Herod Antipas, which, and he's a lackey of Rome, which means in effect, they're loyal to Rome. This is absolutely clear that these two parties, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other because the Pharisees were the Patriots. The Pharisees were the supreme Jewish nationalists. They, they, are, they are the epitome of everything it meant to be a loyal Old Testament, Old Covenant Jew. The Herodians were the, the master examples of accommodationists. They accommodated the political climate. They didn't care what was going on because that was their, where they were comfortable. That's where they got the security because they benefited financially from this loyalty. So, I mean, listen, if you have the two opposite extremes in the political spectrum of first century Israel, how do you explain that? They have a common enemy. Who's the common enemy? Jesus.
1: The Rodans are, are Jews also. Yes,
0: they are Jews. Mm-hmm. They're Jewish leaders. They're all wealth, really, as a a very small political party. And when I say political party, you think of our system where you're like, that's not what I mean, just like the political spectrum of first century Israel. Where would they be on that? And so, I mean, this is is very, for you to really understand the significance of this, you have to understand who the main players are. And these guys never did anything together, never agreed on anything together. They despised each other but they have the common enemy. So they are agreeing, presumably in the Council of the Sanhedrin, they're agreeing, now notice it's an infinitive of purpose, to trap him in his talk. So these guys have, they've hatched this plot, they put this together, and Mark tells us, this was their intent, and they came and said to him, teacher, now notice, (laughs) notice this language, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God." Now, they said three things to Jesus. They, they defined his character in this way, that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Would that be valid? Yes. John says in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, Jesus shows up full of grace and truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. So when they're saying that's true, for you're not swayed by appearances, is that true? Yeah. But truly teach the way of God, is that true? You're all supposed to say collectively yes, Yes. but the question is, do they really believe that? course not. So what are they doing if they make a three-part statement about Jesus that I think we all concur, they really don't mean this. What are they doing?
1: Ready
0: to throw him under the bus. Yeah, ready to throw him, you know, buttering him up. Do Mm -hmm. you still know what that phrase means? It was something (laughs) I used to talk about, buttering him up. They try to relax him relax him, make him feel comfortable before they absolutely hit him over the head, figuratively speaking. But Jesus is not a normal, ordinary person who can be puffed up. You can feed his pride to lower his defenses. That's not going to work with Jesus. So after buttering him up, hopefully catching him off guard, getting to relax a little bit, which that is not going to happen. Then they jump. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay them or shall we not? Now, what they have in mind here, and the the, the Greek word that's used here is actually from a Latin word, taxes, is... Kenson, K-E-N-S-O-N. Can you figure out what word do we get from that? K-E-N-S-O-N. Census. The word census comes from that. It's the annual poll tax. Excuse me. The annual poll tax, P-O-L-L. It's a head tax. So every Jew had to pay it annually. It was demanded by Caesar. All of that money did not go into the treasury in Caesarea, where the the, uh, Roman governor was for the Roman province. All of that money went directly to Rome. All of that goes right into the treasury of the Caesar. And so if there was any any tax that the Jews in the first century Judea detested, it was this tax, Because it was the epitome uh, in terms of, of measurable tactile ways of of thinking about of their subjection to Rome, of being an occupied people. We've got to pay a tax area that goes directly to the Caesar. And so when they use that word, that's what they're talking about. So you can see this is well thought out. This is to trap Jesus. Because look, (laughs) is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay them or okay? No matter how Jesus from their perspective. No matter how Jesus answers the question, he's done. Because if he says no, don't pay the tax to Rome, he has just committed sedition, and it would be it would be the right of the Roman governor to arrest him. Because anyone that goes around in any of the Roman province, but now in Judea, is saying you don't have to pay your taxes to Caesar. That head tax, that's Son, You don't pay that. Immediately Rome is going to come on arrest you, and you'll you'll be dead. But if he says, yes, we got to pay our taxes to Caesar, that will, that was significantly reduced from their perspective, his popularity among the people. Because again, if there was anything that the Jew of first century Judea hated, it was paying that poll tax. So they thought they had him. As they hatched this plot, presumably among the the members of Sanhedrin, well thought through there's just no way he can get out of this. We are going to diminish him. We're going to demean him. Hopefully he'll say, no, you don't have to pay the whole tax and we can have him arrested. Verse 15. But remember, they're not dealing with a human being who can be puffed up, felt proud and lower his defenses. He you know exactly what's going on. But knowing their hypocrisy, that could be a statement of Jesus' omniscience, that he knows everything, or it could be just a result of, I have, I've been with these guys before. I know what they're really like. So whether it's a supernatural omniscience or just a logical conclusion, that's not that important. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which is the Roman, the, the normal Roman coin That was used to pay the poll tax or the head tax. A denarius um, is equivalent to about a year's, excuse me, a day's labor. So you work all day and you get paid a denarius. But what is particularly important about the denarius, because it is a Roman coin, I don't have a coin but you know what a coin is, but on one side of the coin on one side of the coin would be the image of the Caesar. At this time, in AD 33, it's Tiberius, who is the son of Caesar Augustus. He's actually adopted son, but the son of Caesar Augustus. And on that would say, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So, I mean, just just a symbol of that coin is, oh, hits at the heart of a Jew. I've got to pay my tax with that coin because it says, Tiberius, Augustus Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, that's Caesar Augustus, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar, who became the the Caesar after Caesar was killed, Julius Caesar was assassinated. Well anyway, so that, and then on the other side of the coin would be the chief priest. The chief priest, not of Jerusalem, but the chief priest of the emperor worship the chief Roman priest. Now in Galilee, excuse me, in Judea, and actually between Galilee too, but in Judea, they, there was among Greco-Roman people like in Caesarea and, and uh, in Tiberius along the, the Sea of Galilee and other, other cities, there were priests of the Roman cults, like the, the, the worship of, of Zeus, or Jupiter, the Romans called them, or Aphrodite or whatever. But in Jerusalem, because that's the holy city of Jerusalem, Rome didn't insist on that, at least right now. But still, on the other side of that coin would be the chief priest of the Roman cult. So you're paying a tax with symbolically, as well as figuratively, the most offensive thing you could possibly hold in your hand. That's what Jesus said. Give me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one, so we're assuming today the they is a Pharisee or a Herodian or whatever. And he said to them, the, what I, just, I just explained to you what the coin looked like. Whose likeness and inscription is this? The word likeness is icon, E-I-K-O-N. We get our word icon from that. But whose icon is on this? And they said Caesar's. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. Now let's take that apart. Let's think through the Lord's response here. Let's think through his two comments. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. Do you have teachings that you have an ethical obligation to the state and you should pay your taxes? You do. You see that in both the old Testament and the new Testament. Uh, One of the most complete and central passages on that would be Romans 13, one through seven, where Paul and Paul uses three different words for taxation. So it's three different categories. You do need to pay your taxes. Because even if it's an unrighteous ruler, he is providing the defense of your territory. He deals with crime and he promotes justice. So, yes, you support that because, and this is an incredible word, Paul says that ruler is a minister of God for your good. And the word minister is diakono, he's a minister. The same word is used for deacons. And so you you, oh my goodness, okay. Even though it's an evil ruler who doesn't have God's interest at all, God put him there. He's a minister of God for your good. So you do have an obligation to support government. But then he says, render to God the things that are God's. Now let's think through that a little more. You and I, are created in the image of God. On that coin is the image of Caesar Tiberius at the time this was this is written. You and I have the image of God stamped on us. I'm curious, how much do we owe to God? He says, render to God the things of God. How much do we owe to God? What
1: well, don't we owe God?
0: That's right. We owe him everything. So when you really start to take this apart, you have an ethical obligation to an institution God established, government, to promote justice and support evil. It's a minister of God for good or good. You do need to support that. But you also need to render to God as his image bearer. Your image is on, his image is on you. And you owe him. Everything. So, their mark summarized, and they marveled at him. <laughs> Did their trap work? No. This is God. This is the God Man. This is the incarnate God. He had everything under control, and this is this is not only really masterful. This teaches important truth, even in twenty twenty one. No matter. Who is in power? You have an obligation to that person, and that's really hard because none of you like who's president right now. I'm pretty sure you will all watch.
1: Stuff. I do wonder where it breaks down a little bit for some Christians because one, a lot of people think they're not doing the three things. You look at the border, you look at some of the things they're not doing. So why
0: did God put this turkey <laughs> in charge? <So. laughs> Well, I'm going to just, I'm going to leave, (laughs) I'm going to leave all that lying on the table, Bill, but but the important point is you still, because remember, when Jesus is saying this, and then when Paul writes what he writes in Romans 13, I mean, these aren't good Caesars. they aren't good rules, and there are are that that's oppressive, and the way in which they dealt with things, oh my goodness, there's just and yet, there's still you have that obligation. Right. But then that second part, you render the God with God. When when you start thinking, okay, I bear the image, and the word is icon. I have the icon of God on me. I'm His image. And what do I owe to Him? I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to take that coin and render my obligation to Caesar. But I have the image of God stamped on me. I owe Him everything. And when you start breaking that down, I mean, this is a deeply profound. Theological statement here, a dual obligation. But you know, when I was asked that question, it was also in our society for a lot of Christians that reason has broken down
1: because mm. I don't think what we just read is really emphasized because <laughs> it is broken down. Well, it is. Look at it, it really the is. Lack of,
0: yeah. uh,
1: the, the way Christians have behaved in the last few mm-hmm. years toward our government.
0: Well, I I think one thing, too,
1: that's happening here is that we are losing sight as to who we are uh, in, in Christ, and we feel like we are the ones to make the difference rather than God, but we can make the difference. If God can work through us. Because we forget we can make the difference and we get wrapped up in government. Yeah. And that's not
0: the. No. Well, and Bill, I think one of the, whether it's right on the front burner for them, whether it's a back burner, they're thinking, they're buying into something that the, all the major problems of our society can be solved by government. Right. If you believe that, that's an unbiblical statement. Correct. That's an unbiblical conviction. And that's where we start to break down. That's right. And it's, Chuck Colson, before he died, wrote a book, uh, Kingdoms and Conflict, a marvelous book. But in that book, he talks about, and remember, he would have written this probably in the late 80s, I think, maybe early 90s, because one of the latter books he wrote. But anyway, he says they buy into a political illusion. And what he meant by that is that if I just select the right people, I going to be right. right. And the king, it's almost like the kingdom will come. And he said, if you believe it, you're buying a lie, that is not true. <laughs> That doesn't mean you don't work for good government in a Democratic republic. We vote. We can petition that government, all those things. But the other thing that I wanted to comment on as well, Bill, that I also see lacking among so many believers is in first Timothy chapter two, Paul says, pray for your leaders in authority over you. Right. And when he wrote those words, Nero was the Caesar. I mean, just think about that. If you think Biden is bad, think of yeah. Nero, you know, what if he were, you know, he was a, but he was a horrible man, and yet you see. And I often, when I I don't you know travel like I used to, but when I would be asked to give conferences and I would say to them, among other things, "Today, did you pray for your president?" Of course, it <laughs> depended who was president there those dark times. Are, but you pray? And, you know, some of you look at me like deer in a head like this, or shocked, and then I would read from First Timothy, Timothy two. That is part of what we're supposed to do, and I think. I mean, I would challenge everybody to. When was the last time you prayed for President Biden? You know, I'm pretty sure most people here, or just broadly speaking, they never even thought of doing that. Yeah, you that's know, a command, and so it's it's balancing our responsibility to critically evaluate and in the Democratic Republic to vote and all that, but to do also what God asks us to do: pay your taxes and pray for your leaders. And by the way, Titus, in in Titus chapter one, show respect to those in authority over you. And and that doesn't say greed, doesn't say support, but show respect. And so all of those things are important for us to just, let's recalibrate now. And what Jesus is doing here is keep all this in perspective. You are to pay your taxes, but you're an image bearer of God. You owe him everything. Keep that in perspective, too.
1: You know, Jim, Jesus is is confronting them, too. They are the leaders. And he is confronting them in a way that delivers truth without a sword. And he's giving them an opportunity. And maybe that's what you're saying in part, two that as we think about our leaders— that we need to pray for them, as you say, and realize God appointed them, but realize that God is going to work it out. Because Christ came at a time in, in history that was extremely politically difficult.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Absolutely. It is even comparable to. Well, I remember this goes way back. I couldn't even tell you. I guess it was in the 1980s. Um but and I don't remember what the issue was. So let me just illustrate because it, it was so convicting for me. Uh, there was something in Congress, something going on, and Senator Edward Kennedy. Remember him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He died of brain cancer late, not too many years after that. But he was championing and supporting a particular piece of legislation. It was something that was, was pretty bad piece of legislation. And I was railing at one night. The kids were gone and everything by now. But I was railing at dinner table, and Peggy said, "Thank you, honey." <laughs> I'm gonna put him on my prayer list. <laughs> and I you know, I, I said that I said that to her I think a dozen times in the weeks that followed. Honey, that got me back to what my obligation is. I can critically evaluate what he's doing as a United States senator. But according to First Timothy two, I'm also to pray for him. And Peggy started praying for his salvation. Now, there are, I don't know if you've read, near the end of his life, there were a couple people that got around him that were believers. Now, whether he ever accepted Christ or not, I, I don't know that. But I only had a lot of opportunities because of two of the people that were around him. And it was just a, it was for me, it was a reminder from my wife. She always teaches me very profound truth. And it brought conviction. I, honey, you're right. And so now, and this is something we've done for a long time. When we are sitting down to have a meal, we don't talk about politics. You know, we just don't. I mean, you just stay away from it because there's nothing that's more disruptive. And when the kids were home uh, as well, but just to stay away because there's not going to be much edification when you're talking about politics. It doesn't mean you avoid it, but at the dinner table, that's family time.
1: Let me put, put Biden in another perspective. Biden is, is the face of the Democratic Party, the party which would throw him under the bus in a split second, <laughs> and I think that what they're doing to him is elder abuse, and, and he, he, he needs prayer.
0: Well, I mean, he does. I, I prayed for him because, as you, I'm sure you know this, and, and then we're going to get out of this. We're going to get to the next <laughs> You know, he, he comes from a very devout Catholic family He, he who is a very devout Catholic. And, and if you think of going to mass and so he still is. But like so often, even among evangelicals, what you say you believe and how you live are in juxtaposition. And that's the, that's the situation with him. He's not being consistent with what he says he believes. And I think that's something that all of us need to be reminded of. If we say I really represent Jesus then I represent Jesus completely, I'm not compartmentalizing stuff. All right, let's move in and get out of this. <laughs> Bill, it was all your fault. You brought it up. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's, it's, okay. <laughs> it's right, here, yeah. it's right in the so Bible. Sure You're sure right. You <laughs> there. Now, there's, a, there's the next confrontation. And this, remember, this is passionately, these final confrontations. This is led by the Sadducees. Now, let me remind you who they are. The Sadducees dominated the Sanhedrin. They were the majority party. They were, for the most part, they were the priests, and the chief priest, the high priest, was always chosen from the Sadducees because they controlled it. That's the reason. In addition, they were the upper class. They were the very wealthy Jews in the Sanhedrin. And um, I wish I could take you to Israel, but if you're in Jerusalem, here's Temple Mount. And to the west of Temple Mount, there's been a whole area that's been excavated, and you have to go below ground because things are built above as time goes on, but are the the homes of the Sadducees. I'm telling you, they're unbelievable. Indoor plumbing, unbelievable luxury. The Sadducees were the upper crust of society in first century Judaism. But in addition to that, theologically, they're the liberals. They're anti-supernaturalists. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in, in a lot of the supernatural elements of Judaism. And they are accommodationists as well. Uh, by uh, accommodation, I mean they they will accommodate to Rome to preserve their status. And so the Pharisees didn't like them either. And <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's just when you have a common enemy, you can build coalitions regardless of what you believe. And so the Sadducees, now knowing who they are, came to him, and then Mark adds, "You say there's no resurrection," and they ask him a question, teacher. Moses wrote that if a man dies and leaves his wife, leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man, uh, literally in the Greek language, his brother, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, when he died, left none. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Number four, we look at verse 23. This is what is called the Leverate marriage. Okay? This is what's called the leveret marriage. And that word is a very important word. The Leveret marriage. It's in Deuteronomy 24 and so And it, it really was, it really was a very gracious provision of God in the in the moral law, because um, and in a way that's still true today, but in particular in the ancient world, you have a man who owns property. You know, it's an agricultural society, very important. He owns property, he's married, and he dies, and they don't have any children. What happens to that land? What happens to his name? It goes out of existence. And so to preserve that man's property and that man's name, the brother of that man takes that woman as his wife, impregnates her, and she has a son, that son inherits his name and inherits his property. So it's a grace, because remember, I hope you you can think of it this way, this is the covenant land. This is the land God promised Abraham. And when the tribal land grants were dispersed after the conquest under Joshua, those land grants were then divvied up tribe, clan, individual families and having your property boundaries, that was a very normal thing to do. So this is really important. This is a gracious provision, but the Sadducees take this very important practice and make an absolutely absurd scenario out of it. You have seven guys, she marries each one, she there are no boys, and then she dies. So here's the punchline question. In the resurrection, Now, remember, what did we just learn about the the, the Sadducees? They don't believe in the resurrection. But in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, again, knowing what really is going on here, they perceive we've got him trapped. How in the world can he answer this question? Jesus said to them, what time is it? We're okay, I think I can get through this. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Whoa, what an accusation. You're quoting or, well, alluding to, you're alluding to the scripture, but you really don't know them. And by the way, you really don't know God. Now, verse 25, he explains this. And the very first thing is he focuses on the power of God first. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given of marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Let me stop there for a minute. This, I, I mean, this has happened to me over the years, numerous times you know, preached on this, or people just come up and ask me questions. Uh, I have a, a thing at my church, they call, it ask Dr. Eckman, and people can email me questions and so on. And this happened to me, I think, at least 25 times. You mean I'm not going to be married to my husband? In heaven? And this dear lady, she had tears coming down her. Because this passage, and I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what we have to think about the institution ends, not the relationship. The institution of marriage was created by God, Genesis chapter two, and it is a major part of organized civilization. And then when you read like Ephesians five verse 32, the apostle Paul's is talking about the marriage relationship, the role responsibilities of marriage relationship. He says, this is a mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church, which is a shocking verse. Because you just talked about the husband and wife, but a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So we learn something else: marriage is to be a metaphor of Christ's relationship with the church. It has a very—it's a proclamation, it's like a—it's like a, a sermon. It's to non-verbally preach something, non-verbally proclaim something. But when Jesus comes back and sets up His kingdom, and we enter into the eternal state, that function and purpose of marriage ends because you will have had the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the bridegroom marries his bride. Marriage ends as an institution. Its purpose and function is over. The institution ends, not the relationship. I expect to have another relationship with Peggy in eternity. I expect, I mean, and if, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point, and and you can see what, he's, he's nailing them. You don't understand the power of God. The resurrection is a real promised event that's going to occur, but don't expect continuity in institutions. The institution of marriage is a institution God created for a very specific purpose. When eternity begins, that purpose ends. The relationships don't end because you'll be like angels. It's a simile and what, that I think really means is reproduction ends. The reproductive dimension of marriage, you know, remember back in Genesis 2, multiply and fill the earth. <laughs> and so that ends. So we're not gonna, it's not gonna be reproduction. So it's a this is an incredibly important verse to help keep perspective. We learn a little bit about the eternal state here. The institution ends, relationships don't. And procreation will not be in heaven. And then, um, verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, that's Exodus 3, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, I want to comment on this, because I'm getting close to the end here. The Lord Jesus quotes from Exodus 3.6. Now, it's really instructive that he quotes, because the Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees only regarded the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. They ignored the rest of them. So that's the Pentateuch. So if you're going to prove the resurrection, oh my, you could go to Daniel chapter 12. It's very clear there. You could go to Job 19.26. It's very clear there. You go to Isaiah 26.19, it's very clear there. But Jesus doesn't go to any of those. Why? Because they don't accept as authoritative. So he goes to Exodus 3.6. And everything Jesus hangs, is uh, is arguing here, hangs on the tense of a verb. Now, when they are talking, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's 2,000 years earlier. And so Jesus would have legitimately said, I I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And everybody would have struck that. That's not the verb tense he used. What verb tense does he use? The present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, what does that imply? That the relationship between God and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob continues. So Jesus proved the doctrine of the afterlife by the tense of a verb from the texts that they accepted as authoritative. He couldn't quote from Daniel, couldn't quote from Job, couldn't quote from him, because they didn't reject those as author- they didn't accept as authoritative but they do accept Exodus, it's one of the five books of the Pentateuch. So I just think, oh my goodness, when I look at Jesus, he's such in control of this situation. He knows exactly how to nail these guys using their authoritative scripture that they were, I mean, Jesus did too, but that they were God. And I mean, it's just, this is masterful. You guys don't understand the power of God and what the resurrection will gonna mean, and you don't even understand scripture. You don't even understand the importance of a verse like Exodus 3, 6, to you, who you claim to be authoritative. God says, I am. That's what he's saying to Moses. When he's talking to Moses 500 years earlier, not almost 600 years earlier, Abraham had died. So what tense is God? Moses, I am the God of Abraham. And Jesus uses that as the crux of his argument to prove the afterlife. So I mean, isn't this just fantastic? What the lord jesus is doing here yeah. any questions you guys on line there are you with me just
1: uh just a yes comment. sir yes sir um,
0: no no
1: um when, when we run across a scripture that we don't understand uh, and and we go to god and and, and basically say i'm not going to let you go until i get this give me some insight here i need this mm-hmm. That whatever he provides is probably going to be an encouragement to us, but don't you think, Jim? I mean, he's not he a god is. of stone. He's a god of. He
0: is stone. a god of conviction, but that can be conviction and comfort. And both of those will serve his purposes. I mean, I'm sure you all have studied Scripture. and I just thought, this is really convicting to me. It can be very comforting to me. It can be very edifying. I mean, all of those things are what the word of God accomplishes. And and if you're in a situation where you really need a word of comfort, God's word will provide that to you. You have to read four verses or maybe four chapters. <laughs> but He will you will find that comfort that you need. So absolutely. Um Yes, I mean I yeah, I was gonna go down the bunny trail that i are not gonna do that. All right. That's good. Was there a question online here? Did one of you guys have a question? I thought one of the lights went. Okay, good. All right. All right. Um, let Let me introduce what we'll pick up with next week. It's in verse 28. Now, this is of chapter 12. This is another one of these confrontations, but it's the last one. Because then... In verse 35, Jesus is going to go on the offensive. one of the few times in which Christ goes on the offensive against these fierce leaders. But next week, we'll start, one of the scribes came up. Remember, scribe, scribes are normally Pharisees, but they're the teachers of the law. They're the ones who taught the law. He came up and heard them disputing with one another, presumably what we just studied, and answered them well and asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now the Pharisees, the scribes, taught 613 individual commandments. Now just think about that. 613 individual commandments. And so in that context... One of the raging debates in first-century Judaism was which one's the most important. So, in that context, they're trying to draw Jesus into that controversy. If you want to find out how he responds to that, come back next week. All right. I'm going to pray, and uh, and then I I need to to get out of here and get on to the next one. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your good questions and attention. This is a really this is a really important section. I, I hope for all of you we learn some additional things or re- reminded of some very important things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this absolutely beautiful day you created. What a lovely fall day! Thank you for that good rain of the night. You are you are a good God, and when you send blessings like that, we are. It's important we take care to thank you for them, and we we do today. Thank you for sharing all this with us. Pray for these men, both here in the room and those online. Lord, continue your work in each one of their lives to be strong men of faith, men who take seriously your word, men who take seriously their relationship with you. And we're just reminded again uh, in the Lord's response to the Herodians and Pharisees, we owe everything to you. We owe obedience and our taxes to our government, but we owe you everything because we have your image on us. So Lord, help us to be faithful men of God who love you, who seek to represent you well as your salt and light. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you next week.